Good morning. Good to be together on this beautiful summer day. And uh, if you don't know who I am, I'm Mark Meifer. I'm uh, one of the pastors here on staff, and I want to talk to you a little bit about the tongue today. Uh, My parents uh, hailed from Switzerland, and occasionally in my youth, we would go back and visit the relatives. And on one of those trips, I remember walking into the butcher shop, and to my amazement, I saw a cow's tongue in the case. I couldn't believe that people would actually eat that. And a couple nights later, I couldn't believe that I had to eat it because we went to relatives and they were serving tongue for dinner. And you know how a kid has a heightened gag reflex? Well, mine was working in all of its glory. I couldn't get it down. I just, it was a texture thing, believe you me. I couldn't swallow it. And uh, James comes to us with some hard words to swallow about the tongue. Hard because they're true words that kind of hit us right between the eyes, really, right, right here in the old kisser, right between the lips with our words. Um, one of the things that I think we forget because we use words so often is how, how unique they are, how powerful they are. I don't know if you've thought about the power of words, but um, consider words like Martin Luther King Junior's words, I have a dream, words that can inspire. Consider President Nixon's words that were recorded for the nation and the world to hear, words that brought him so much embarrassment. Consider words that will change a relationship. Uh, I love you, or let's just be friends. Words that change the course of your life. Will you marry me? I want a divorce. You're fired. Huge. Words that kill. Like, you'll never amount to anything. Can't you do anything right? What's this B doing on your report card? Or words like, have you heard about so-and-so? And there's words that heal. I'm sorry. I forgive you. And we use words all the time. Throughout this last week, we used how many thousand words? I don't know. A lot. We use them within our family relationships, maybe with roommates at work, on the sports field. We texted them. We blogged them. We emailed them. We said them to ourselves. We said words to God. And I don't know if there's anybody here today that would say, hey, if, if there was a tape... And there was a tape. It's up in heaven. That's the good news. But there was a tape recorded running of all the words. If, if somebody said, I've got your recorded words. Anybody here say, oh, you could, you could play those at Door Creek. I'm good with that. I don't think so. I don't think so. And so James comes with a hard word about words, our words. And yet it's a gracious word. It's a good word. It's a word that, that gently reveals in some startling ways the power, the destructive power of our words. And it's a good word because it just ties in on where he's going about the nature of faith. What does real faith look, look like? And he helps us to see that real faith isn't just about good works, but it's about good words. And so he's been talking about faith works in this book. It works out in all of life when life is hard and in trials. 
faith works so that we persevere and we grow in Christ's likeness. He talks about our faith working when we're tempted so that in the face of temptation, we don't blame God, but we resist the temptation and honor God in obedience. He goes on and talks about how faith works. It works through obedience as we don't just hear God's word, but we do it. And if we do the word, the first mark of a doer of the word, he says, is someone who keeps a tight rein on their tongue. And then the whole second chapter is all about faith working in relationships so we don't show favoritism and just cater to the rich or to anybody who could do something back for us. But we actually, like Rahab, are willing to meet people and love our neighbor as we confront their need and do something about it. He says faith works in all of relationships. And now he's going to take us to how it works out in our conversations, in our vocabulary, in our mouths. So turn your Bibles to James chapter 3. If you need to grab a Bible, there's one underneath the seat in front of you somewhere. You could grab that and turn to page 855. I encourage you to open up as we look at these first 12 verses of James chapter 3. Now, it's a little bit like going to the doctor for the, the annual checkup. You know, one of the first things he does is say, stick out your tongue, right? Puts the depressor down on your tongue. He says, say, ah. He's looking at your mouth. And uh, James is going to do the same thing right here. So let's read in unison verses 1 and 2, okay? Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. There's a warning here, and there's a wake-up call. The warning comes not just to those who are teachers, but even to those who want to teach. And what's the warning? Teachers will be judged how? More strictly. It's like God saying, I don't want you to just hear the word. I want you to do the word. And by the way, don't confuse teaching the word with doing the word. You got to practice what you what? Preach. And God says there's a stricter judgment for those who know the truth, who teach the truth, and then don't do anything about the truth in their own life. Stricter judgment. Not just for those who teach, but those who want to teach. Not just those who teach in the church, but those who teach in our families, moms and dads. We're teachers. You're a small group leader with our students in Extreme or Rock. You're a teacher. You sit around a table with some women at Greenhouse or Faith Lift. You're, you're a teacher. You're doing the same thing at men's fraternity and in and, and your small group, your home group. You're leading that. You're, you're a teacher. Stricter judgment. What are the things that teachers will be judged more strictly on? Well, not just not doing what we teach, but let me suggest to you there's a few other things that come into play. We'll be judged more strictly when we're teaching for the wrong reasons, when our motives are mixed up, and when all of a sudden we're doing this thing called teaching for ourself. When, we'll be, when, when will we be judged as teachers? Not only when our motives are mixed, but when we stray from the truth of God's word. Proverbs 35 and 6 says, Every word of God is flawless. Do not add to his words, or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. The goal of a teacher is to stay on the line, the razor-edge sharp line of God's word. Not to go below it and take something away. Not to add to it and add something to stay on the word. 
the line of God's word. When our teaching leads to legalism, all these things you have to do so that God will be pleased with you, forgetting about the work of Christ on the cross and grace will be judged. We'll be judged when our teaching is out of balance and all we do is seemingly go back to that one issue that we continually harp on. When our teaching gives people permission to sin, when our teaching makes and takes the promises of heaven and says, hey, you should expect that today. You should expect heaven today. That's the health and wealth gospel that's prevalent on the TV. Listen for it. Taking the promises of heaven and saying, you get that today in Jesus. Jesus says, you get the cross today. You get the crown later. You get tastes of heaven. But you get suffering too. So when our teaching is not put into practice, we will go under a more strict judgment. Well, the wake-up call is in verse 2. Just in case any of you are going, phew, I'm glad I'm not a teacher. Well, look at verse 2. What does it say? We all stumble in many ways. So say it with me. I stumble in many ways. Say that. I stumble in many ways. We're not perfect, James says, when it comes to this matter of speech. And when you just look at his letter, not all of Scripture, you see all the different ways that we could mess up and get tripped up by our tongues. There's blasphemy, where we say, God is the author of sin and temptation. There's the rash, angry words. There's the unbridled words that just get out unprotected, unguarded. There's words of flattery. There's words of of piety, this false piety. There's words of cursing. There's words of fighting. There's words of slander. There's words of pride and presumption. There's words of complaining and bitterness. And add to this in the other parts of Scripture, lying and gossiping and harsh words and seductive words. And on and on the list goes. And James says, we all stumble. Those are the kinds of words that came out of our mouths this past week. No one's never at fault. And I think the truth is, a lot of us, especially those of us who've walked with Christ for a while, you know what I think happens? Is we pride ourselves that we have not done the big sins, as if God has them on a, on a scale. But we've figured out what the big sins are, and we haven't done them. And we're feeling pretty good about it. Like the, like the Pharisee who said of the tax collector, When he went to the temple to pray, Dear God, I thank you that I'm not like this scoundrel cheat of a tax collector. And we we forget that at the foot of the cross, it's level ground, and we're all sinners, and we're desperately in need of God's mercy and grace and forgiveness. And it's this area of our mouth that makes it clear we all stumble. We all stumble. So James then anticipates the question, well then, how could something so small and so seemingly insignificant as our words, as our tongue, be such a big deal? And what do words have to do with my faith anyways? So we look at verse 3. He says, well, let me tell you about small things. Let me tell you about small things that can make a big difference. When we put bits in the mouths of a horse to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal 
Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and often driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. So he takes us to these two images. There's the bit and there's the rudder. And he says of the bit, it's small, real small compared to this big animal, and yet it's used by the rider to control it and to give direction where we're going, to communicate where we're going. The rudder in the same way. It's used as it's connected to to whatever it is the pilot's using to steer that ship, the rudder moves at the pilot's will to move that whole big vessel in a direction he wants it to go. Control, direction in these small things. They're powerful in their influence over bigger things. He says, that's your words. Look at verse 5. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. When there is a whole lot packed into those two verses. You could argue that there is nothing better in the Bible on the mouth, the tongue, than we have in these 12 verses. And these two, five and six, get right at it. There's nothing in all of literature that dissects the powerful tongue quite like these two verses. So what does he say? It's small, but it does great damage, like a spark in a forest fire. It's a world of evil. It is full of evil. It can corrupt the whole body of all of who we are. It can destroy our life. And even as it spreads, the fire spreads, it destroys others. It can wreak havoc in the body of Christ. And it's a fire that was lit by the enemy, lit by the very flames of hell itself. That's where this stuff comes from, from the enemy. So when I was reading about forest fires, I was remembering that I know a guy right here at Door Creek who's done that. Matt Desmond. He's part of our stewardship board. And he's fought fires in Arizona for several years. And so I I sent Matt an email because he's doing some research right now in Milwaukee. I said, Matt, could you look at these verses? Give me your take as a firefighter and a believer on these verses. So it was really cool to get his email and to share some of those thoughts with you. He told me about this fire that happened in 2002. It's called the Rodeo Chedesky Fire. Burned over 500,000 acres. I couldn't really figure out how big is that. It's 800 square miles. That's big. And it destroyed 400 homes. And he said there were two fires that converged into one and they both started in a very kind of innocent way, so to speak. Little small way, insignificant way. First, in the one case, the Jadesky fire, it was a single bush that was set ablaze by a lost traveler. That was to keep him warm at night or cook a meal. I don't know what it was. Got out of control. The other one, though, a little different. The Rodeo fire was set by an unemployed firefighter who was down on his luck, needed some cash, and figured the quickest way to get back to work is to start a forest fire. Seriously. So he starts a forest fire. The two combine, and they wipe out 800 square miles 
of parts of Arizona and New Mexico. He said, A roaring wildfire is a sight to behold. And the most awesome and destructive of fires are called crown fires. These are the ones that can create their own wind currents, that develop their own weather patterns, the kinds that sound like a train barreling down the tracks or a fleet of tanks. It rolls from treetop to treetop, hence its name, a crown fire. And it gets to some unbelievable temperatures. Some have been measured to exceed over 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And they just rip through a forest so that animals that are running out of its path get caught up and charred. And so firefighters regularly will find from these crown fires the skeletal remains of these animals, these herds, right in with the ashes. He says they're so hot that not only does it destroy the vegetation that we'd expect, but even the dirt and the ground itself. It's called moon-faced because of how it turns the soil into what looks like the surface of the moon, changing its constitution, hardening it so that things don't grow for centuries. So he said, how appropriate to compare such a destructive force with the tongue, the power of the word. I thought this was really helpful. It's in language's speed and destructive power that the tongue, our words, can resemble a wildfire. And it's also in its innocent genesis, its innocent beginning, a single spark that can destroy land that stood green and beautiful for centuries. Or just a single conversation, a word that can forever change a relationship. And there's a whole bunch of us that have lived long enough to know that personally. One conversation, one phone call, one letter, sometimes one word that forever has changed that relationship. James uses these pictures so we get the right understanding about the tongue. It's small, but it's powerful. It's small, but it's destructive. Like that spark that sets the whole fire ablaze. And then he goes on in verse 7 and 8, gives us some more bad news. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed. We've enjoyed watching them, whether it's been on TV or at the circus or wherever. But he says, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. The bad news is not only do we all, not only do we all stumble in this matter of our words, not only that when we stumble it's destructive, but guess what? You can't tame it. No man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil. It is full of deadly poison. Now, he gives us another image. So let's put up the picture of the fierce snake, or sometimes it's called the inland taipan. When I googled most venomous snake, this is what came up. I don't know if it is or not, but it's pretty venomous. It says this about the fierce snake. In, in one bite, 
They've got enough venom, 110 milligrams, to kill at least 100 men and 250,000 mice. That's a lot. One bite. And James is saying, that's the lethal force of our words. One bite, one unbridled word can do great lethal damage. But there's one more thing that James wants us to see here. Look down at verse 9. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who've been made in God's likeness, God's image. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. James says the crazy thing about the tongue is we we find ourselves using it in in, in a variety of ways. And, And there's great duplicity in our life. So on the one hand, we come to church and we're praising God and singing his praise. And that's right. For Jesus says, from the lips of children and infants, I've ordained praise. The scripture says, let everything that hath breath praise God. That's why we're created. That's a good thing that we could sing together, sing alleluia. That's a good thing. But the danger is, the good thing can deceive us into thinking, All's well. When we walk out of here and hop in our car and somebody cuts us off on the belt line and all of a sudden you know what happens, all of a sudden you realize, oh, our conversation's laced with profanity. We're critical and negative of our wife or of our kids or, or whatever it is through the course of this week. And James is saying, that's not right. I mean, just think about it, he says. Think about God's creation. Think about fresh water and salt water, or, or it could be translated bitter water. They can't both flow from the same place. And yet we have this source in Christ. John 4 tells us that Jesus gives us living waters that flow in and through us. And, and James is saying, yeah, you have that, but it's being polluted. There, there's, a, there's this other stream that's coming And it should not be. He says what cannot be in creation. You you can't have a fig tree bearing olives and you can't have have this grapevine bearing figs. It can't happen in God's creation. So it should not happen in his new creation. But he acknowledges it does. And if we're honest, before God this morning, we go, yeah, it does. It does in my own heart. I do both. I do both. And it's not right. It's not right. And so, there is a sober teaching here for all of us. When it comes to our words, we all mess up. Our words aren't little things, they're big things. Big things like fire. And nobody can tame the tongue. And Jesus says we'll have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word that we've spoken. And we go, what do we do? What do we do? I think it's kind of interesting as I was looking at this passage this week that James is writing to a group of people that he cared a lot about. And obviously this was a deal going on in their relationships. There were words that were being said that were hurting the family of God. 
It was compromising their ability to stand tall for Christ in the midst of their world. And it probably was heightened by the fact that times were tough. They were under trial. And it's easier maybe to let out some of those kinds of words when times are tough. But he cares about them. And it's just amazing to me that there's nothing explicit here. He says, now here's what I want you to do. It's like, where, where is that, James? And maybe it's because James just wants them and us to get one big thing today. And that is, our words are powerful. That we'd understand that in a new way before we go running off and saying, what do I need to do to fix it? Just, just to understand, they're powerful. Some of you know it so well because your, your, your whole growing up was just being barraged by words that just kept taking you down and down and down. You know it. Maybe you're in a marriage relationship where the only things that come out of your spouses are critical words. You know it well. James wants us to all know it well. Powerful are words. But I do think he gives us two clues on what to do. They're they're kind of tucked away. Look at verse 8. There's the first one. What does verse 8 say? No man. Didn't say no one, no man. That means none of us. Nobody, no human being can tame the tongue. But there is someone who can. God. The reason we know that, we'll see later, is because Jesus' tongue was perfectly tamed. Perfectly tamed. So that's the first thing to remember as we're wrestling with this whole thing of our tongues is you can't fix it. You can't tame this wild animal, the tongue. Only God can do that. Here's a second thing. Is to go down to verses 9 through 12 and look at this whole thing about springs and realize that James is following up on what his brother said in the Gospels. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus says. So, you know what that means? Jesus is saying, our words become a window into our heart. So you know a lot about my heart through my words. If I've got angry words, what does that say about my heart? I'm an angry man. If, if I'm trafficking in lies, what does that say about my heart? It's not filled with truth. It's a deceptive heart. The words are a window to our heart. And what James is telling us in line with what Jesus has said in the Gospels is, if you got a mouth problem, if you got a words problem, if you got a tongue problem, you really have a what problem? What is it? It's a heart problem. So don't go running to fix your words when this is just, this is just the symptoms. You got to go back to the heart. And so that guides us as we think about, well, what do we do here? What do we do here? So as we bring it home, let's just start with that. To acknowledge that we got a heart problem. To tell God what he already knows. I mean, the deal is, the tape has run from the minute that you and I started babbling. It's been running. God knows every word, yikes, that we've ever uttered. 
He's heard them all. So you tell God what he already knows. God, I have sinned, I've messed up, I have destroyed people with my words, and those words have been destroying my life. Please forgive me. There's a prophet in the Old Testament, his name was Isaiah. And here's how he put it when he was confronted with the holiness of God. The first sin that he was confronted with was his words. It's really interesting. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Ask God to forgive you. And then follow it up and ask those that you've hurt to forgive you those that you've destroyed. Don't, don't ever say, and I've been guilty of it, I didn't mean to say that. Yeah, I did. That's why I said it. Because I meant to say it. Because I was so blooming mad, I wanted to hurt that person back. If you just were a little more patient with me, I wouldn't be saying things. Don't, don't, that's, not con- that's not confession. You just take responsibility. The words that I use wrong hurtful I'm sorry will you forgive me and you ask God for help God help me help me because I can't tame this thing help me Lord the psalmist says create in me a pure heart O God and renew a steadfast spirit within me ask God for a pure heart there's a heart that's a new heart that's It starts pure. God gives us a pure heart. We need that. And then we realize that that pure heart can get messed up and there can be impurities and say, God, clean it up, purify it again. God can do that. He loves to do that. Ask him to fix your heart as you wrestle with your mouth. And the scriptures say this, hold tight the reins of your tongue. James 1.26 says we need to have a tight rein. You know what it means to have tight rein? It means to be in contact with that animal. It means to be in contact with your words so you know what's going in and out of your mouth. James talks about that. He says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. That'll keep a tight rein on your mouth, on your tongue. Be slow to speak. He who guards his life guards He who guards his lips, the writer in Proverbs says, guards his life. Tight rein on the tongue. The psalmist says this, I will put a muzzle on my mouth as long as the wicked are in my presence. He says, I'm going to keep a tight rein. I'm going to put a muzzle on my mouth. And then the psalmist asks God to do it for him. He says in Psalm 141 verse 3, set a guard over my mouth. Oh, Lord, keep watch over the door of my lips. And Matt was saying that one of the great misconceptions of forest fires is that more firefighters die in the big ones. He says it's not true. In the big ones, you're so acutely aware of the danger, your guard is up. It's in the little ones, in the controlled burns, in the back edges of the big fires where your guard is down. And I'd say for a lot of us, that's a good word to hear. It's, it's an everyday's conversation that we get our guard down and we say things that we regret and so desperately want to take back. Keep a tight rein on our tongue. 
Here's another one. Steer your words in the right direction. This comes from experience and from the word of God. My experience in this area goes back to junior high. In junior high, my struggle with tongue manifested in a lot of different ways and places. But let me tell you about one of those places. Of all places, it worked out in uh, a gym class. And at gym class, I kind of morphed into the proverbial player coach. I knew all the rules. I knew how to do it better than anybody else. And I had commentary on everybody else's performance. And I was a class A jerk in gym class. I knew it. My friends knew it. And God knew it. And I talked to God about it all the time. And here's what I said to God. I said, God, help me shut up today in gym class. I prayed all through sixth grade. I prayed all through seventh grade. I prayed all through eighth grade. never happened. One day as I'm praying, I didn't hear a voice, but as if God said, I want you to shut up. I want you to use your mouth for good. Instead of being a pompous jerk, why don't you encourage somebody? Why don't you compliment somebody? And you know what? I have to tell you, that was liberating because I knew I couldn't shut my mouth. And God said, you don't have to. Use it for good. In the midst of all the warnings of the destructive power of words, let's never forget that fundamentally in its purest form, words are good. The first words ever spoken by God, a talking God, brought life. They were powerful and they gave life. And God wants our words to do the same. Paul put it this way in Ephesians 4, 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So choose to use words that heal, that give life, that give grace, that extends mercy. And for that to happen, we need to keep on being filled with the Spirit. And when you read Ephesians 5, 18, it says, keep on being filled by the Spirit. The first thing it says that's the mark of a Spirit-filled person is they speak to one another with psalms and hymns and praises. And they're thankful. And when we think about being filled, it means, God, fill me with your Spirit. And we understand we aren't filled with the Spirit until we are filled with the Word of God. They work together. I'm filled with God's Word so that my words, as Peter says in 1 Peter 4.11, are so in touch with God's Word that it's as if I'm speaking the very words of God. So I don't know what new picture you have of your heart. I don't know what new understanding you have of faith, but it cannot be less than this. Our hearts are crooked and not right in this matter. And our faith has to manifest in not just good works, but good words. And if there's inconsistency here, we know where we need to go to the heart, and only God can fix that. So let's pray. So God, fix our hearts. Give new hearts to those who realize maybe anew today of their desperate need of you. Lord, for someone who's been beaten up all their life that could never believe 
that you would love them because no one's ever loved them. Would you grant them mercy to believe that you do love them with an everlasting love? Lord, creating us a pure heart, renew a right spirit, that the words that we speak would be that fountain of life that graces a world out there that so desperately needs it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.